morning. Let's read about the way that Jesus showed us now. And we're reading from John chapter 13 and verses 1 to 17. And that's page 1081 in the Bibles in the pew. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who's had a bath only needs to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he said. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So this is a short-term mission service when we've sent out all those seeking to serve Jesus in our name. And when I was thinking about this service, I thought I should focus on the mission stuff, you know, opportunities and challenges and preparing yourself and the usual sort of thing. But that's already been done brilliantly by those you've seen from already this morning. So instead of the mission bit, I thought I'd focus for a few minutes on the serving bit. 
Uh, and serving is obviously something we need to be particularly aware of when we go out into a new context intentionally in Jesus' name. But it also, of course, applies to all of us everywhere, all of the time. We talk a lot about serving the Lord, don't we? It's our phrase of choice when we want someone, usually someone other than ourselves, to volunteer for something. And we talk about serving the Lord quite a bit too when we need financial or practical help and all that sort of stuff. But it's not actually something we think much about otherwise, which is a bit strange because the idea of service and being a servant is meant to sum up all this Christian business. And the Bible's absolutely chock full of serving language. I don't know, in fact, that I've ever heard many sermons on how to serve. Apologies if I just wasn't listening. Out of curiosity, I looked up Christian leadership on Amazon. 20,000 hits. I then looked up Christian service on Amazon. And there were a stack of books telling you how to run funerals and weddings and baptisms. But apart from that, there was absolutely nothing. And then I thought about all those Christian conferences and events and seminars you're supposed to go to. And, you know, there's loads of stuff on being an effective Christian leader and how to have an all-singing, all-dancing church, etc., etc. But there's very few kind of talks and seminars on Christian servanthood. It seems we'd much rather lead than serve, doesn't it? Does that perhaps tell us something? Well, maybe it's just much easier to write and talk about leadership than about service. And it's certainly much less challenging. I had an interesting time trying to get this talk together. The minute I sat down to it, the phone went and I was asked to go to Newtonards to run some messages. I said yes, but inwardly I groaned and sighed, which doesn't seem very Christian, does it? And I went to Newtonards, but all the time I kind of resented the interruption. Uh, And I probably made it absolutely obvious that my precious time could have been far better spent on something far more important than urgent. Then I came home and I sat down to this and I read this quote. Servanthood is revealed in simple, everyday events. We are never more like Jesus than when we are serving others. Ouch. So, as you can see, I'm not an authority. I need God to work on me and I'm preaching here to myself. But when you start looking, the theme of serving permeates the Bible. There's Isaiah's suffering servant, which is a prophecy about Israel, but also about Jesus himself. Jesus came into this world as a baby in a barn, offspring of a refugee family on the run, one of those families from Syria who've ended up in Athens that we we were talking about, with all the associated vulnerability and weakness. And he died crushed and broken on a tree. The most humiliating of deaths reserved for criminals and, yes, slaves. And in between his short life, 33 years, and even shorter ministry, three years, were spent teaching and healing the largely insignificant, the ungrateful, and the undeserving, hanging out with outcasts and remnants and sinners, his mission constantly being misunderstood 
making himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a slave, as Philippians 2 puts it. But perhaps the best example of Jesus' life of service is this bit in John 13 where he washes his disciples' feet. And it's something we all know, but let's just remind ourselves where this fits. This passage just comes after Mary of Bethany, or the woman who's led a sinful life, has washed Jesus' feet with her tears and anointed them with precious perfume and dried them with her hair. And that was a costly sacrificial act of love and repentance which prepares for Jesus' death and burial. And just as Mary expressed reckless sacrificial love for Jesus by washing his feet, so now we see Jesus expressing reckless sacrificial love for his disciples by washing their feet in turn. And we're told in verse 1 that Jesus did this because he loved his disciples and he loved them to the end. And that could mean he loved them in terms of an end or a conclusion, but it also could mean that he loved them fully, completely, recklessly, without reservation. And then we're told further that Jesus absolutely knew that his hour had come. He knew that it was time for him to go to the Father, that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from God and that he was going to God. And so we're told that it's precisely in that knowledge of who he is and where he's going that he lays aside his garments and he takes on the role of a servant, a slave, and he kneels down and he humbles himself and he washes the disciples' feet. And what's more, this washing makes the disciples clean. So we have costly loving service, we have glory revealed in utter humiliation, a washing that makes us clean, that sets people free. Does that remind us of anything? You see, this scandal of the foot washing is meant to anticipate the even greater scandal, the even greater cleansing, the even greater love poured out on the cross, where Jesus died to set us free from sin, where his blood washed us clean for all eternity, and where he cried out, it's at an end, it's completed, it's finished. Yet the disciples typically still grasped none of this. They'd had three solid years following Jesus, but they were still obsessed with their own status and position, their own place in the pecking order, their own role and influence. And in the Gospel of Luke, it says that immediately before the Last Supper, where this washing takes place, a major row had broken up between them yet again as to who would be the greatest. And so Jesus warns them yet again, this time with a visual aid they just can't miss, just how warped and tainted their perspective is. You call me teacher and Lord, he says, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also must wash one another's feet. I set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, for the disciples, spiritual greatness is measured by prestige and power and status and influence and how much clout and control you have over others. But for Jesus, spiritual greatness is measured 
Not by what position or status or clout or power you have, but by how much you go and serve others. It's an uncomfortable contrast. And the trouble is, we're so familiar with this passage that it's almost become devalued. It's hard for us to grasp the utter scandal of this, how radically Jesus has reversed the done way of doing stuff. Because actually the most disturbing thing in this passage is not washing the feet itself. It was a menial job, but they were quite used to it in Bible times. Slaves washed guests' feet when they arrived at somebody's home. Children washed the feet of their parents as a sign of respect. Wives routinely rushed to wash their husbands' feet as soon as they came through the front door. And I'm saying nothing here. And the woman who lived a sinful life has just washed Jesus' feet with her own tears. So yes, it was an unpleasant job, but it didn't have the absolute cringe factor, the sudden fear that there's a hole in my sock, or it's months since I've had a pedicure, or even what if they smell, that that we kind of associate with all of this. When the disciples walked in, caked with muck after fighting over who would be the greatest, they knew fine well that somebody would have to wash their feet, just that no way would they be budging even one inch to lower themselves to do it. You see, the real shock was that it was Jesus, their teacher and Lord. More than that, Jesus, who's come from God and who is going to God, who opted to take on the job. Now, there's not much call for washing feet in Northern Ireland, so let's try and think of a similarly unpleasant task that's common to all of us. What about cleaning the loo? It's not particularly enjoyable, but it's something we all have to do. And we've just had a royal celebration with all the pomp and glamour and clothing and outfits for the occasion. But imagine if tomorrow you walked into your bathroom and there was Her Royal Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, her crown and her string of pearls and a handbag laid aside, and she's armed with the loo bush and the toilet duck and she's snapping the marigolds on and she's bent over your bog and she's getting stuck in for a good old scrub. You see, that's just one kind of iota of the absolute shock and the discord and the upset that Jesus is causing here with all of this. This just isn't how royalty, how a lord or a master is expected to behave. It's complete role reversal. It goes against the grain. It's scandalous. It's offensive service. But if we're absolutely honest... True service, consistently putting other people's needs before our own, goes against the grain for us too, doesn't it? Flies in the face of our rights culture, offends us if it goes on too long. And why is that? Perhaps it's something to do with the idea of prominence, of wanting to be noticed. We don't tend to have servants or slaves these days, so try and think of the last time you went to a really good hotel or restaurant. You see, the best staff in the best establishments don't draw attention to themselves. They're largely silent. They're they're almost invisible, and they kind of blend into the background, only to miraculously reappear when a door needs opened or your glass needs filled. And actually, you don't tend to think of them as individuals so much as the name or the brand they represent. Didn't think much of that place. The service was absolutely awful. I'd go back to one of those hotels again. Wasn't the service great? And maybe, like the disciples, the idea of service offends us because 
Actually, even unconsciously, we don't like being invisible. We do quite like to be noticed for what we do. PCI has a category for ministers not in regular congregational ministry. They call it ministers in recognized service. And I get completely what they mean, that their ministry has to be in accordance with the doctrine of PCI and whatever. But all the same, it's an interesting title. And it got me thinking, how much of our service and our ministry is really done not to serve, but to be seen, to be recognized, to be recognized as doing the right sort of thing? And how much of our service of others is actually all about ourselves? I don't think we'd be too good at unrecognized service, would we? But the goal of Christian service is precisely that, to point to Jesus and not ourselves. Ministers in unrecognized service, that's a new title for all of us. And then even if no one sees our service, it's all too easy, isn't it, to kind of keep a personal tally of all the things we do, perhaps to make comparisons with others, perhaps to justify ourselves. Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, is interesting on this. Lord, the righteous cry in absolute amazement at the end of time. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink, etc., etc., etc.? You see, true service as defined by Jesus is about an attitude, a lifestyle, an identity, something that just naturally happens rather than a list of achievements and actions that we add up and reel off. It's unconscious service, I suppose. And then let's be honest. It's much easier to serve God in something big and exciting, something that gets us noticed, something with a tinge of adventure and radicalism and risk, than in something trivial and mundane and boring. Some job, perhaps, that nobody ever sees and that nobody else wants and that nobody else would dream of doing. Dwayne Elmer, the missiologist, writes, Up to this point in John, we have seen Jesus doing work that no one has ever done before. He's turned water into wine. He's given sight to the blind. He's raised the dead. But now, now Jesus does what almost anyone can do, but few want to. He washes feet. And that servanthood revealed in simple, everyday events. The importance of insignificant service, of service in small stuff. And then finally, notice something else. You see, we don't get to choose who we serve. Just like the staff in a fancy restaurant have to serve all their customers and they can't discriminate. Because servants lay aside their rights and preferences, and they just serve anyone, period. As Christians in Northern Ireland, or even in a church like Orangefield, it's easy enough to make choices about our preferred options for service. It's easy to gravitate to people like us, people who think like us and will by and large appreciate what we do. And serving's easy in that kind of context, But you see, when Jesus served the crowds and even the disciples, words like uncomprehending, unreceptive, downright ungrateful come to mind. How about serving those types of people? How would we feel? And Jesus goes further even than that. 
John 13, 11 tells us he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And so Jesus knowingly washed the feet of Peter, who was about to deny him, and of Judas, who was about to betray him. And this suggests that we're to serve not only those who are like us, or those who like us, or those who treat us well and appreciate us, but we're also to go out and serve those who aren't like us, those we struggle to feel at one with, those who don't like us, those who even oppose us, and those who disappoint us and hurt us and even betray us. And that's downright offensive, isn't it? Surely there have to be exceptions to this love and service business. But Jesus' example tells us you're to act lovingly towards this person even when it goes against the grain, even when you'd much, much rather do otherwise. Indiscriminate service. So that's offensive service, unrecognized service, unconscious service, insignificant service, indiscriminate service. And surely this is mission impossible, this is. But having reminded ourselves of the challenges of serving Jesus, let's remind ourselves of the precondition he gives us for serving him. You see, the whole thrust of this passage makes us recognize that we just can't do it. We just can't do this in our own strength. And just like Peter, we need to submit to Jesus. We need to say to him, Lord, I'm not right. I'm not there yet. My attitudes and my motives and relationships are not pure. I desperately need you to wash me clean. And when we do come to him, confessing our pride, our self-centeredness, our sin, he washes us. He makes us wholly clean again, and he gives us the power to live for him. How can we be sure of this? Because he's gone and done it first. I set you an example, he says, that you should do what I have already done for you. He served us first. He loves us first. He washed us completely clean. And he loves us fully. He loves us to the end, right the way to the cross and the grave, and then back again. Shall we pray? This is a prayer used by the Sisters of Charity in Calcutta, the missionary service founded by Mother Teresa. Dearest Lord, though you hide yourself behind the disguise of the irritable, the exacting, and the unreasonable, may I still recognize you and say, Jesus, how sweet it is to serve you. For your name's sake. Amen.